Welcome to the first episode of Fintech at Haas, a podcast featuring employees, founders, investors, and the wider Haas fintech community sharing their perspectives. I am your host, Michael Jenkins. Joining me on the show today is Stephen Deng, a Berkeley Haas MBA from the class of 2015 and the co-founder of DFS Labs. DFS Labs is an early stage accelerator program which invests in founders building the future of digital commerce in Africa. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, yeah. Happy to be here and thanks for having me on. Before we get into your work at DFS Labs, it'd just be great to understand more about your background and how you got to where you are today. So my name is Stephen Dang. I'm one of the partners at DFS Lab and very quickly we're, we're an early stage investor in African fintechs and now more broadly African technology companies that are working on digital commerce. And how did I get here? I went to Berkeley undergrad as well. So I grew up in the Bay Area and I worked in the Silicon Valley for a long time, a lot on technology valuation and IP related work. And this is when kind of smartphone technology was propagating. And I did a lot of work in the mobile space at the time. And while that was fun and and interesting, it, it didn't really scratch that itch of kind of doing something a little more meaningful. I think a lot of us MBAs, especially at Haas, have that itch. <laughs> and so I applied to business school, um, and I looked at a lot of the programs and you know focused on really the social impact thematic area that I wanted to go after. And Haas actually just made a lot of sense. In business school, I kind of explored the whole gamut of different options from you know social impact consulting through to impact investing through to at the time is when a CSR was still a big thing. And I ended up at the Gates Foundation. Uh, for my internship with the financial inclusion team, which at the time was very focused on mobile money because mobile money, especially in East Africa, was becoming the core piece of infrastructure that financial inclusion was being distributed through. And it was also exciting for me who had never really applied this set of technical and strategic frameworks that I'd learned in private sector in the US related to telecom to something more international. What my team and I saw at the time was at the foundation was that there was a lot of early stage FinTech work that was going on that had huge implications for who had access to finance or not within the countries we were working in. But the foundation itself was not perfectly set up to help those teams because uh, of some of the the ways that grants work and also some of the processes that had to happen for for grant uh, grant making to, to function correctly. So we spun what is now DFS Lab out of the foundation, actually, uh, initially with just a broader mandate to figure out what the role of philanthropy could be in working with earlier stage fintechs. And now it has evolved into a, a broader set of, I would say, support and capital that is still focused on early stage companies, but includes both fintechs and now what I would call a broader set of companies that are doing digital commerce. Because they're they're so interconnected that it's very hard to separate in in 2020. Was your work at the Gates Foundation during your internship where your interest in fintech and financial services came from? Yeah, I would say that fintech itself developed more during my time at Haas when it was, there were many different areas in international development that I was looking at, right? That included education, healthcare, but financial inclusion has an interesting aspect to it where the alignment with profit motives is a little more natural than a lot of the other things out there, I, I would say, where it, there's a sense of because you're creating oftentimes digital infrastructure for finance, that there are built in revenue schemes that make sense, both from a providing more access perspective, but also generating revenue perspective that 
sometimes still run into issues with subsidy, et cetera, but I feel like those conflicts are a little less strong than they are in something else like healthcare, where um, directly you see subsidies that kind of clash sometimes with the profit motive. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Just to cycle back to kind of your time at Haas, you know, can you talk a little bit about your, your fondest memories there? What, what sort of things you got up to? In terms of my fondest memories, I mean, it, in the end, it always comes back to people, right? And I think a lot of us go to Berkeley because, not necessarily because of the, the people that we want to become, but, all, but also to meet the people that we want to build our futures with. And so in many ways, I still interact with a lot of my class and, and those, my fondest memories have to do with trying to discover what I wanted to put my effort into alongside others that were along the same pathways and in, with very similar values, but different enough that we challenged each other. So for example, when I, when I started, I wasn't sure that I wanted to work in international development. There was, I had a lot of um, interest in working in, for example, the U.S. education sector or other aspects of kind of the U.S. social impact sector. And there was enough room there for me to explore. And so, you know, I had classmates that had worked in um, the kind of the ed tech sector in the U.S. or had worked in government in the U.S., for example, that gave me a lot of perspective. And I think joining the different student clubs and talking with folks that were on a different pathway to you but could offer you kind of like that look into the future was really helpful. And at the same time, it helps people bond. And so the, the people I'm still closest to have, I guess, not surprisingly, ended up working in international development. Um, there's folks that are building kind of the huge fintech players in Indonesia. I have a friend who built an investment bank in Rwanda that, that all started at Haas. All of us kind of not really knowing what we wanted to do, testing out different things. And then I think that process itself is, is incredibly unique to the NBA experience and maybe more specifically to the Haas experience. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of people come to business school not knowing what they want to do. And by having a very diverse class, people from different sectors, you know, different industries and bringing them all together, you really get an idea of what other types of, of roles might look like. And it's really great to see people go on to do different things. Just going to the setting up of DFS Labs, does that continue to be funded by the, the Gates Foundation? So when we started, we had originally started with a grant from the Gates Foundation. And it was, like I said, a little more broad in terms of more of an exploratory grant of where the role could be, which we were very privileged to have because it gave us some time to try out different models and really figure out what was missing. Because we were trying to address many gaps at once where there was a financial inclusion gap more broadly. There was also a funding gap um, in early stage. So we worked from pre-seed through to seed. There was almost no money going to pre-seed companies in Africa when we started. It was mostly companies waiting until Series A or B. And then what you would see is there would be some companies that rise from the top uh, to the top, and they would just get piled on in terms of social impact capital. That's changed a lot, I would say, over the last you know four years or so. Um, but when we started, that was another gap that we had to address. And so when we started, it was a lot of foundation money to figure out what that role could be as we've progressed we're not now funded by any foundations. We are much more looking like a private investor. Um, that said, we do have a lens towards mass market products. So we, we invest primarily in products that are accessible to lower and mid-income folks and not just products that are kind of tailored for high-income populations. 
So I guess by that, your uh, standard fund that would look to make profit as well, it's not purely a social impact play. Yeah, there's um, there's a lot of debate right now, and I think in my community within the investment space about what actually social impact means. And I'm sure there's debate about it everywhere. Um, you certainly still see the role of what social impact funds that are very tailored for impact do, right? They have uh, very specific metrics that um, companies need to hit. They have their own things. Sometimes they follow the SDGs. Uh, the social development goals. Um, but I think for us, what we came to with a lot of the exploration was that if you're able to help build economies that include more folks, especially folks that have more access to greater income opportunity, that in itself is one of the strongest pathways to social impact that, that exists. Um, and so we are a traditional fund now because I think we haven't build ourselves as a purely social impact fund for at least the last two years. When we started, we certainly were. Um, and we do raise capital from co-investors that essentially are putting money into vehicles that are invested into cohorts. So we invest in about eight companies per cohort. And if you invest into this vehicle, another benefit we have is you, your money gets split evenly amongst those companies. And so we almost serve as like a mini little index for fintech and digital commerce companies for a period of time, like for a set period, like maybe, you know, every four months or so, um, which solves another issue that we were seeing where a lot of international investors were interested in investing in FinTech in Africa because they saw the growth, but it was really hard to find a starting place, especially since you have to kind of like relearn marketplace through the opportunity, right? Through the specific opportunities. I think offering an index has been pretty, pretty good for us. You mentioned that before DFS Labs was set up, that a lot of companies weren't funded at the pre-seed and seed stage. How are they getting to that Series A, Series B funding that you kind of mentioned when they get an influx of money? There was obviously a gap there, and I wonder how companies were surviving up until then. Yeah, so recently one of our, our friends um, had an exit who was a fintech entrepreneur. And one thing he wrote about was how in his early stage, which was that period of time, you know, he had a nine-to-five job. And, and his bootstrapping was the nine to five job, but also working full time on a start a FinTech startup in Uganda. Right. And so that's what you were seeing many times. It was people who were hustling on side projects that were able to pay the bills and then spending the rest of their free time working on their, their projects, um, from the entrepreneurship side. And, you know, you would see people get funded, but I would say previously there was a, a huge focus on. U.S. and Western credentialed founders, so folks that like like you and me who have MBAs from U.S. or European schools, or had previously founded companies in the U.S. or had you know Google or Facebook credentials, for example. I think that's changing, but in the past, those were the people that were getting pre-seed funding, and so there wouldn't be a ton of them per year. I think now there is a lot more focus on finding out where the the local hubs of innovation are, especially when. There are folks who might not have that traditional set of Western education that previously people were looking for. Um, there is a lot more opportunity now to get funding. And do you work with local universities and other kind of centers that entrepreneurs are getting educated or are you kind of help hoping to provide that education independently? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think there's a sense of bootstrapping in terms of this uh, first generation or second generation of founder that is somewhat outside of the education system right now. In, and it's country specific, right? So there are different conditions in different countries, but looking at somewhere like Nigeria, where I would say is one of the more mature startup ecosystems in Africa, 
what you do see is there has been a first generation of relatively successful founders um, that have built large multi-hundred million dollar companies. And they are now the ones that are kind of paying back the system. A lot of them, um, for example, the founder of Flutterway Vandela has started his own funds. A lot of them are mentors, are starting internship programs. So that's where you're really seeing the training. But to answer your question more directly, yes, like we built our program so that we are helping people build those skills as they're being funded as well. And that's a huge piece of it, actually. As you mentioned, with the first generation founders supporting the, the continuation of the ecosystem, that's what really helps it develop. And I think you've seen that in Europe where you've had a few pretty big exits and people are starting to do a lot of like angel investing and mentoring and things like that. And that really helps filter down the, the education and the money because up until like recently, there, there was a kind of gap in early stage funding. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing I'll add to that is there's a, to me, there's a big difference between an angel who is not from technology from, so, for example, there are a lot of oil and gas executives that are angels or things like that from more traditional industries in Africa um, and, and in Asia, where they bring a lot of business knowledge and capital, but they don't necessarily have that startup stack in, in, you know, in their toolbox. But when you, when you get more founders who are able to bring all those things together, there's a lot more value. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's almost it builds on each other in very strong ways. And so one thing we've done is we've built a, a scout network of founders and we're, we're trying to help jumpstart that PayPal mafia ish network in Africa. Um, and it's just starting out, but we're excited for it. Some of those entrepreneurs, part of the, the, the DFS program, I know you guys put together a curriculum of education and I, I wonder you have a lot of those entrepreneurs as part of the program. Yeah. So it's something that I think is still in its infancy in terms of being very, very structured. But certainly we think mentors who have that experience building, growing, um, and potentially exiting companies is critical to both the legitimacy of what we're providing, but also for very, very lived-in experience in terms of what types of advice they're giving. Um, and so they, they feature heavily both in the sourcing, the mentorship, and the further growth of the portfolio companies. Um, but I, I would say that we also augment that with more a more global stable of mentors because we almost see that you have to match strong local expertise with people who can help with more global trends to help people almost broaden vision and think about things like expansion, um, jumping to new verticals, and just things like growing your addressable market, because that's always one of the challenges in a fragmented area like Africa. How has the program changed over the years? I'm sure you've seen the nature of the companies that have gone through the program has changed and the amount of companies that apply to, to the program has also changed. I'd say a couple of things, and there's probably more than a couple, but one thing would be on the founder side. I would say that the quality of founder and the experience of founders has grown dramatically over the last four or five years in Africa. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not just, I think, a, like the natural evolution you see with people gaining more and more experience. I think, I think it's actually that people are getting better at adapting solutions to their local environments and not simply copying other solutions. So we saw this area of like rocket internet companies, right? The, the Jumias of Africa coming in and we saw some success and also some very notable failures. But I think the evolution now is that there is a very unique African perspective to how to build a company that incorporates a lot of the startup stack from global lessons, but also very strong kind of local expertise. And that 
has changed our program in a sense that we are now also looking for mentors that provide things like that. Uh, when we invest, our criteria has shifted to look at more things along that criteria. Um, and the second thing I would say is that along that line, when, it, when we think about how we are putting our thesis together of what we're investing in, um, there was a huge, I would say, optimism streak around digital for, for the, I would say, 2000 to now. And that actually hasn't played out. So with smartphones was the big story in, in from 2005 till now, um, or 2007. But what we're seeing is start, smartphone growth is actually slowing. And a lot of the estimates about smartphone ownership and usage, especially in developing countries, has actually not held up to those projections. And I think the reason is a lot of the value that's being created in these economies are not purely digital yet. It's, it's not like people are consuming a ton of digital video or music or even a lot of digital media in other ways yet. A lot of it is still the basics of you know, food, shelter, healthcare, distribution of products. But we're seeing a, a world of startups that digitize some of the processes within those things and create tech-enabled processes around those things, especially around platforms and, and physical distribution that are really exciting. And so we've evolved alongside those trends changing as well. We started very much with a very digital mindset, and now we're much more in a digitally in enhanced mindset, if you will, and much more on this online to offline marketplace. You mentioned the importance of local knowledge, and do you think that's what has put off some Western companies from really taking a foothold in, in Africa is that they don't have that on the ground expertise? I guess I'd push back a little bit in the sense that there are a lot of US companies in Africa. So like the, the FMCG companies, Unilever, Coca-Cola are very you know deep into the continent in terms of where they sell and what they provide. I would say that the pushback has, again, been to a lot of digital focused companies. So something like a Facebook or from China, like a WeChat or Alibaba, where I think the challenges that you face landing in Africa, wherever your entry point might be, are, are very different than I think what a lot of the challenges that they solve for in the US might have been. And as they hire more folks that have that local knowledge, I think they're getting a better understanding of what it means to be able to enter these markets. Um, and, and so we're, we're kind of still waiting for that large leap of faith from a lot of folks. Um, because I think the, the reality of the situation is if you're going to build from a platform perspective, which a lot of these companies are, you have to solve for a lot of the infrastructure that enables your platform. Sometimes that infrastructure in the US or in China or maybe even in Indonesia has been solved for by the public, by prior companies. You know, For example, logistics in the US is basically a solved issue, right? Where if you're going to go into different countries in Africa, you have to carry that infrastructure backlog. Um, and that that is a huge deterrent. That exact problem is something Moses Lowe from Zendit. Yeah. Uh, he spoke about he was trying to build some technology and then realized just basic financial infrastructure wasn't there. And he had to build that on top of trying to build his own product. But it's obviously led to him and Zendit being pretty successful. I guess that is one way Africa can learn from the infrastructure built in the US and hopefully build something better. The ACH system in, in the US is <laughs> very old and not quite up to scratch. There's an opportunity there for being a lot more digitally first. Yeah, there's, there's certainly a lot of leapfrog that's happening beyond what we know as the leapfrogs that we saw in, in the places that we live. So one of the weird examples is that um, Bitcoin transaction volume in Africa is, is pretty large compared to, you know, I guess in a, on a per user basis. Um, 
another thing is the the shift of logistics from kind of old school logistics where it was very centralized to what looks like decentralized on-demand logistics. A lot of it that we saw happen in Asia, that's starting to happen in Africa much more quickly than it has happened in the West. And so there, we're going to see leapfrogs that we're just not used to, but they're happening. Mobile money has been around in Africa for a long time with M-Pesa, and it's just surprising that still it's not that accepted yet in the U.S. People still like their checks. That really surprises me how much B2B payments is still done via check in the U.S. You have kind of countries that have the ability to leapfrog because they don't have the fixed infrastructure of all the banks. And I think that's a really positive thing for, for continents like Africa. There's this concept called invested infrastructure that, that we like to talk about. It's the idea of the, the change that's needed to happen to adopt a new, new behavior within yourself and also then compared to the benefit, right? And with, with infra, the card infrastructure, the check infrastructure, and the banking infrastructure that exists here, it's really hard for us to switch to, to mobile payments, I, I feel like, uh, especially with some of the credit card entrenchment that has already occurred. But you look at China, you look at Africa, you know, starting with a much lower bar and the, the benefit being so large, all those users are willing to take the pain of learning. And I don't know if you use old money, but it is a pain to use. It is, it is kind of horrible. But that just shows how much value that's actually bringing to the customer that didn't have anything before. I completely agree. And Europe is somewhere in the middle that yeah. you know, regulators, regulators are kind of forcing it upon people and you just don't have that approach in, in the US. It's very market driven. So I think it'll get there, but it'll just take a very, very long time. Absolutely. How, how would you kind of characterize the state of fintech in, in Africa? What are the main themes over the last few years you've seen? Yeah, I would break that up by region. So uh, when you're look, talking about West Africa, especially within Nigeria, you're seeing a lot of really exciting things. Um, you're seeing a, a growth of competing payment processors and payment aggregators. You have uh, Flutterwave and Paystack, which are kind of leading leading the pack. You know, we and, and then you're seeing them kind of expand out to more verticals as well. So a lot of them are now doing both B2B payments as well as person-to-person -person payments, and they're starting to step into e-commerce, right? So what you see Shopify doing in Canada, US, Europe, you're seeing some of these companies start to approach that model where they're providing the tools to create digital storefronts, but because they are payment companies, they're also able to offer the, the payment rails, right? Um, in East Africa, like you mentioned, mobile money is still the driving force, and alongside that is this agent network of in-person kind of branchless banking that happens with it. Um, where we're seeing a lot of advancement continues to be utilizing that network to provide stronger financial services. And I think going back to the idea of invested infrastructure, East Africa has that with mobile money, whereas a lot of like Nigeria, for example, does not have that. And so you see a lot of um, quicker to pure digital plays in Nigeria than you, you see in East Africa where a lot of the innovations still have to utilize this um, mobile money infrastructure. The benefit to that is mobile money will reach more people because it doesn't rely upon 4G internet and smartphones. It, it kind of relies only on whether or not you can receive texts. Whereas if you go pure digital, your, your TAM, your, your addressable market is somewhat shrunk. Whereas you have to have people with smartphones and you have to build from that out. And so you're seeing different approaches to reaching consumers. But I think where we're all kind of headed from, a, if you want to have one overarching theory, which is always very dangerous, is you're starting to see digital commerce become the driving force to where 
that is the the on-ramp to a lot of where people are then interacting with fintech and finance in general. We, we see that in Southeast Asia, and I think we're going to see it in Africa. You mentioned digital commerce is, is a big thing now. Is, is, is that the trend you're seeing? And that's why you've shifted focus a little bit to, to that sector? I mean, don't tell Moses I said this, but I've always held the idea that fintech itself has no value to the end user. It, it, it purely is a tool that helps people get to, it's a means to an end, right? People want fintech because it allows them to give people, give money to people that they care about. It allows them to fund businesses, allows them to buy things that make them happy. And I think that continues to be the case where we, as an organization ourselves, we had to really think about if we're not going to invest in companies that can directly, you know, apply finance to people's lives, right? From the top down, what is kind of a more bottom up, a more natural approach and a lot of it comes down to people want to make more money, they want to be entertained, uh, and they want to have things that make lives better, right, in all the facets of life, right, not, not just income generation. But through those channels, you do then see, you know, things that smooth out transactions, that smooth out how cash flow works, for example. And, and it's a much more natural and, and values-driven way of approaching fintech than coming from a spot where I, I think we had before, which was financial products themselves offer all this value and that is inherent in in life which I, I actually think now it isn't i think you'll see a shift towards fintech in, in the background uber made payments so simple you got out the car the payment was made you didn't really think about the fintech involved there it's just it serves a purpose as you kind of mentioned and it's a means to an end does it really matter who your bank account is with if, it, if you can do the things that you want to do with it these products, I think, are going to become commoditized and sit more in the background than they have. And you'll have more, you know, Facebook, Google, Apple taking the consumer facing kind of element that, that banks used to have. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I don't want to minimize the difficulty and some of the unique aspects of fintech that that make it have kind of barriers to entry and make it such a powerful segment. It, you know, most of investment capital to Africa is in fintech. And, and that is because there are there's a lot that founders have to do around regulation, around aggregation, um, around you know customer acquisition that still bring a ton of value to ecosystems. And and you know looking at something like a Stripe or you know like a Flutterwave or Paysac in Africa, just having that payment network in place does enable a lot. So so there's a two-way street here, but I think in the end for the average consumer, the average business, it, fintech itself won't be the entry point. You mentioned investment capital. Where is a lot of the money that's flowing into startups in Africa coming from? Is it from local entrepreneurs who are investing in their own countries or is it more from Western VCs who are looking away from the US and more towards emerging markets and the next big thing? It's, I think it's still very scattered, right? Especially in early stage. Um, a lot of the capital is coming from overseas capital. Uh, what we're seeing now is it's not just Western capital. We're seeing Eastern capital as well. So um, there's some really strong investors from Japan that are making a splash right now in East Africa, especially we're seeing more investors in China, um, especially Nigeria, put poor in capital. And I do think that there are groups of angels uh, within the continent that are building and putting more money out there. I would say more and more of the capital will start to come from local sources as opposed to international sources as the years go on. Uh, but my hope is that it you know, more comes from everywhere <laughs> as the years go on. But I think right now you're still seeing a lot of foreign capital chasing very few qualified deals, and then that capital is split between impact or not. 
What is the DFS program look like for an entrepreneur? What sort of things do they learn? How long is the program? Yeah, and, and a lot of that has changed, as you can imagine, given the COVID situation. Um, so I'll, I'll give you our program as it stands today, given how we have to had to adapt. Um, we've always had kind of two phases. So writing a first check of what right now is around 25K, and then a, a, a period of evaluation and kind of foundation building. In the past, when we could meet in person, we actually flew everybody to usually a beach resort in Tanzania or, or another place that's a little relaxing. And we actually built with teams for a week through a design sprint. And so we would invite mentors, we would have our staff there, and we would just lead a design sprint with the teams to get to know what they were doing, you know, give our own input, and just have a better way of understanding who they were as people and as a team. Now that COVID is in the picture, we've kind of had to redesign that a bit. And so our program in this evaluation phase after that first check, which is pretty quick, is more based around building a strong foundation for that team. And so that involves giving teams what we call a due diligence toolkit, where they can bring, it's a portable kit that they can bring to future investors, where we go into more diligence for them. And we kind of put our stamp on that and do the legwork. Two is we're trying to help teams tell their stories better, especially in times when they can't meet investors in person. And especially when they talk to investors who might not be versed in the African ecosystem or the African market or markets. And that's something that we hear a lot from founders where they're spending the first two or three calls just building kind of the very basic information groundwork of what they're doing. And we hope to kind of cut that time in half at least. Um, and then finally, it's early introductions to investors that are already interested in the market and, and what they're building. And so that evaluation phase is probably going to be about four to six weeks. You know, again, we're, we're testing this out first time, so that could change. At that point, we think we can help them with a pre-seed where we'll probably top up our investment alongside co-investors. And a, a typical pre-seed would be around, you know, 100 to 200K. And then it comes to kind of the meat of the program, which is about a six-month growth, just kind of a growth sprint, right? where we have both one-on-one -on -one calls with our entrepreneurs in, in residence, as well as our head of growth, building a customized growth plan for each team, really focused on traction, introducing them to investors and making those early investor relationships happen, both local investors and international. And then having kind of cohort events, because entrepreneurship itself is very lonely, especially when you're remote. And especially when you're building in Africa, which is very disparate. And so we're trying to build more cohort events into that six months. But at the end of the six months, we are aiming for them, you know, either to go through a top accelerator like a YC or 500, or they're directly raising a seed stage fund, um, round that can propel them to something else. I think that community building, like you mentioned, it's really important. It can be a very lonely thing. And even more so if you're spread across the continent. Having that support of just other entrepreneurs going through similar challenges and being able to support each other is really important. Yeah, it's it's been something that we continuously have iterated on. And I think there the part that you mentioned is certainly true, right? It helps with the loneliness. But, it, but the other part of it is African teams have to expand earlier than teams from other places because the addressable markets in initial countries are generally too small unless you're in... Nigeria or South Africa or Ethiopia, maybe, or Egypt. But if you're in a country where 
you only have access to 50 million people and you know 5% of those people are going to use your product, you better be thinking about expansion pretty early. And the one thing that's been proven health expansion is connectivity to other players within the new markets. And so that's another huge piece of it. And looking forward, what does the future look like for fintech in Africa? I'm sure it's a question you get a lot, but I'd be interested <laughs> to hear your thoughts on five years, 10 years down the line. Where, where do you see fintech in Africa? Like I said, I, I think a lot of it has to be due to the fact that we have overestimated kind of digital progress, but underestimated the value of just what fintech can do to the, the, the real economy. And when, and when I say that, I mean just what is already currently happening in terms of flows of value between countries, between people, and between businesses on the continent. I think the future looks less like a continent that is looking to emulate you know, um, a, a Stripe or a Amazon, but looking to emulate more something that looks like uh, Gojek or Grab or Taobao in, in China, where a lot of the value creation, even on the fintech and the digital stack of payments, is based on what people need on a day-to-day basis as opposed to a more luxury product basis or from a, a basis of a consumer economy that has already gone kind of beyond the basics, right? And so I think I think that's what we'll see within the next maybe you know five to 10 years is a lot more efficiencies in delivery, a lot more efficiencies in helping smaller SMEs find customers, grow incomes, digitize, modernize, and a lot more interaction between what you would call kind of this digital ecosystem with what is currently considered the informal economy, right? Where there are actually a lot of efficiencies in the informal economy that aren't categorized and structured within ways that we're comfortable with. But for folks who are getting services and products from these informal economies, it works really well. Um, and so I think things that augment that economy are going to look more and more popular over the over the years. And we're going to see something, I think, that is uniquely African in terms of what the startup future looks like. And it would not surprise me if we're starting, we're going to start to see exporting of some of the innovations that we see on the continent to other places around the world where they are dealing with similar infrastructural barriers, informality barriers, income barriers, et cetera. You mentioned those type of companies have a lot of initial losses and you also mentioned investors are looking more short term and not as likely to fund those type of businesses. Which of those mindsets is going to change? Do you think investors will just look with a longer term horizon after COVID and get back to normal? Or do you think companies will look to be profitable quicker? So I think both will actually happen. I do think companies are already being more mindful of unit economics. Um, it, it used to be just about traction and user growth, right? When, when people ask questions within, within the first call, now it's all about unit economics, near and long-term. And I think you'll have a hybrid where companies will be able to explain some losses in the beginning, right? In terms of just acquiring users, but having to have a much more um, realistic and believable roadmap to profitability earlier on. And I think investors will, like I said, kind of swing a little bit back more into the mode of this user acquisition, building large user base mentality with a lot more hesitancy when it comes to companies that don't have any idea of where they're going to go in terms of profitability or if the profitability relies on something like a sea change in user behavior or technological innovation that is, you know, decades out. 
thinking about the investors who put money into African startups, do, do you see much from corporates? Are uh, Stripe investing money? I know PayPal have a venture arm. Are those types of you know CVCs quite active in, in Africa? I would say more so, more so than, than before. Like you said, Visa is making a lot of moves now. Um, you're, you're seeing a lot of folks utilize the earlier, and for them, earlier stages like Series B, but earlier stage companies in terms of exploration, right? Just to get a better understanding of where markets are headed and also what markets look like today. Um, and so strategically, I think a lot more is happening. Uh, for someone like a Visa or potentially MasterCard, it goes beyond just exploration where they are actually trying to build more hooks into different uh, countries so that their products become the standard. And, and so I think depending on the, the CVC, they have different motives. But, you know, you're seeing it from U.S. companies, you're seeing it, you know, um, Gojek invested in Safeboda in Uganda. So you're starting to see some of that happen as well. Um, and I think it'll continue to increase as as there's some FOMO that develops around the African sub, uh, African continent as well, because um, there's nothing better to drive interest in investment than, than FOMO, even on the corporate side. Yeah, I think FOMO happens everywhere. I remember Moses telling us about how he raised his first few rounds for Zendit and FOMO is definitely a, plays a big part in, in most rounds. Yeah, yeah. Just a couple more questions before sure. we wrap up. What are some of your favorite startups in Africa? I know it's going to be hard to pick amongst some <laughs> that have gone through the program. Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to to shout out our own our own port codes, right? But I'll I'll try to I'll try to be fair and balanced here. Um, in in Nigeria, I really like Paystack, right? So they're they're a later stage company that the founders of Stripe has called the the Stripe of well, they've called themselves the Paystack of of the Western world. So I think there's there's a lot of uh, praise on that sense. And they're also investors in Paystack. But I like what they're doing be, because they're very deliberate about a roadmap towards value beyond finance. And they start as a payment gateway and they're looking more and more at commerce, which which I think is very natural, but they're so deliberate and transparent about it. And they're executing on that transparency, which I think is key when you're transparent is you better execute on it. Um, so that has been really, really impressive. And um, I like them a lot. In terms of something that may be less traditional, right? Uh, in terms of what we're used to in terms of fintech, we have a company called Pula that is Pan-African, starting to be in India as well, who offers agricultural insurance augmented by kind of satellite observatories as well. And they've been able to sell insurance at a rate that has just been astronomical, mostly because they don't call it insurance anymore. And so they've not only been driving down costs on the, the side of verification, They've also been able to sell the product as a part of a person's normal buying behavior when it comes to agricultural inputs. And, you know, we might not think of ag tech as fintech as much, but when you're talking about countries that are still very reliant, reliant on the ag sector, something like that, that just makes insurance easier to buy, right? And cheaper to buy, makes a huge difference. And it's something that you can see immediately when something like a weather disaster does happen, so many more people are now covered because this company exists than before. So that's that's huge. Um, we also have a company called Nala in Tanzania um, that we invested in quite early, run by run by a former GSB Tanzanian. And I, I really like them in the sense that they're starting in a smaller country. They're building a really strong product for that locality. 
but their vision is global. And for someone like Benji, who's the founder, to continue that and to continue to iterate on that product, I think is the right kind of mentality that we want from founders, where you can be really, really good starting out, but you must have a global mindset and at least a multi-country mindset to be successful. And I think he's kind of setting the stage for for founders coming after him. So I guess those are three examples that I would put out there. Awesome. I'll definitely take a look at those. They sound very interesting. And last question. So who else in the fintech industry do you follow, do you admire that are thought leaders that might make some good interviewees for the program? Yeah. So we have a close relationship with somebody named Osarman Osamuyu who writes something called the subtext. And I, I think he would be an interesting interview for you guys um, because he, he blends a lot of high-level strategic thinking around the Valley, um, Asia, and Africa. And he does it in a way that's, that's I think, more deliberate than I, I can and also in a way that brings in a lot more frameworks than I can. And so he would be an interesting conversation because he's been in the African ecosystem longer than me, but at the same time, he has a really strong high-level view of, of what's going on. Um, I think some other folks that would be interesting would be if you talk to some founders, actually. So I think the gap between what a lot of us do on a day-to-day basis and what a founder deals with on a day-to-day basis is really different. And if you wanted to talk about emerging market fintech, talking with founders that are on different stages of that would be super interesting. And I would be happy to make introductions to them. Um, I would recommend you know, someone from kind of East and, and then maybe West Africa, but then also someone from Southeast Asia. Um, and then I think you'll be able to see the really interesting parallels uh, between the two geographies. Awesome. Yeah, they sound like great ideas for future guests. I'll reach out to you offline to uh, maybe make some introductions if that's okay. Sure. Sure. Awesome. Really appreciate your time. It's been really interesting to talk and hear more about what you guys are doing. Yeah, thanks. I should mention that our application was just opened up for our next cohort. So folks who are listening who want to recommend or apply can apply at our website at davislab.net slash apply. But otherwise, yeah, this was really, really fun. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for tuning in to the first episode of Fintech at Haas. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review and watch out for our next episode coming soon.